This is Gene Therapy for Hemophilia, Dream or Reality, a show on behalf of the Canadian Hemophilia Society. Here's your host, David Page. It's my great honor to introduce our guest, Dr. Jerry Title, Professor of Medicine at the University of Toronto and Medical Director of the Hemophilia Treatment Program at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, Ontario. Now, deciding whether to take gene therapy, either in a clinical trial or after approval, when it becomes more widely available, is a huge decision. Today, Dr. Title will help us understand the shared decision-making process that comes before administration of gene therapy. Welcome, Jerry. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be on here with you. Deciding to take gene therapy is not the same as deciding on previous treatments for hemophilia, such as factor eight or or nine concentrates. What makes the decision different? Well, there's several aspects, David, of gene therapy that are very different from any therapies that we've been able to offer in the past. So first, this is a single treatment, a one-time treatment that we can't take back. We can't reverse it if it causes an adverse effect. When you compare that to all other hemophilia therapies, we can at least stop the treatment if it isn't working well or if it's causing problems. But once we've infused the gene therapy product, which is literally trillions of capsids carrying the factor eight or nine gene, there's no going back. Secondly, when we give hemophilia gene therapy, we have no way of knowing how well it's going to work or even if it's going to work at all. We can't even tell you if it's going to work too well and may give you potentially undesirably high levels of factor eight or nine. Now, it's true that most people have had good results. If that wasn't the case, the trials wouldn't have continued and we wouldn't even be presenting this podcast. But in any one individual, we can't predict how you're going to respond to treatment. Third, if it does work well, we can't tell you how long it's going to work for and whether or when you might need to return to prophylaxis with uh, replacement therapy or some other treatment. And fourth, we can't tell you about possible late long-term adverse effects of gene therapy. There are theoretical risks over the long term, But remember, this is a new technology, and the first trial was only published a little more than 10 years ago, so it's going to be many years before we know if there are long-term adverse consequences. Yeah, those are certainly good reasons for needing a a good decision-making process. So, Jerry, in 100 words or less, can you describe what is a shared decision-making process? Well, I'm not going to promise 100 words, David, because that's a big topic. (laughs) Look, at, at the end of the day, any hemophilia patient who qualifies for gene therapy, whether it's by clinical trial or approved treatment, which is we anticipate it will be, they're going to have the right to request it. But our responsibility as healthcare professionals isn't just to rubber stamp every request, and our patients don't want that either. What they want is the benefit of our objective expertise. So the shared part of shared decision-making consists of your care team providing advice as to whether gene therapy seems to be a good option for that individual. And that's our rule. And it's always been our role to advise you about other conventional therapies and the newer unconventional therapies for hemophilia. So we have to use our experience to give you objective advice. And that's based on our knowledge of how the hemophilia treatment you've had has affected you throughout your life. So take, for example, two people. They both may qualify for gene therapy, but they may have very different lifestyles, different expectations. They may have different degrees of satisfaction with their current treatment. And all those things are going to make us believe that one of them may be a better candidate for gene therapy than the other. And different people will have different other illnesses. They may be on other medications, and that may affect their suitability for gene therapy as well. And keep in mind that we have to be honest 
we ourselves in the care team, we're not molecular geneticists, and we have variable degrees of sophistication and understanding about gene therapy. So we have the responsibility to educate ourselves before any product becomes approved in Canada. So we can provide you with reliable advice to help make these potentially life-altering decisions. That was more than 100 words, but that was a good answer. (laughs) Gene therapy is not yet approved for general use, though Health Canada decisions on approvals for hemophilia B gene therapy are coming soon. Um, For now, it's only accessible through clinical trials. Could you walk us through the process of a person coming to you with an interest in being part of a clinical trial all the way to the day he receives the therapy? Right. Well, you know, keep in mind that clinical trials are very different from the way we deliver approved treatments. So if a person expresses an interest in a clinical trial, the local investigator has to determine, first of all, if he meets detailed inclusion and exclusion criteria for the trial. And these include things like age, sex, disease characteristics, your treatment history, other aspects of your medical history, lots of other criteria. So for the current gene therapy products, this also includes, by the way, an antibody test to see if they may be resistant to the vector, which we use to deliver the factor eight or nine gene. And once you've checked all of those boxes, in order to enroll in the trial, the patient, first of all, has to provide informed consent. Now, this is a long process, and it involves a detailed explanation of the conduct of the trial, including all of the testing that's required, clinic visits, blood draws, record keeping, all the questionnaires that he has to agree to. By the way, I'm using the uh, masculine pronouns because we don't anticipate any women will be qualified for hemophilia gene therapy. All the other medications and activities that he has to avoid and potential adverse effects. And this consent process is generally handled by an individual who is knowledgeable and involved in the clinical trial, but it is at arm's length. In other words, not in the circle of care. And that's to avoid any suggestion of coercion. And some trials also, by the way, include a lead-in observation period in which they have to remain on their regular treatment for as long as six months before the gene therapy infusion. You've had uh, several patients go through this process and receive gene therapy. I was wondering, do do different patients have different approaches to this shared decision-making process? Are some, I guess, much more rigorous than than others in in their need to understand? Yes, absolutely. You know, when it comes, for example, to choices among, go back in in our history, choices among factor concentrates. Some patients are very hands-on, they're very well-informed, and they have strong views about their management, and we have to respect those views. Others, though, are more comfortable deferring it to us on the care team to advise them based on our understanding of the characteristics, the risks, and benefits of the different available products. And since, as we've already talked about, gene therapy is very different from anything that we've ever prescribed before as a one-time treatment with potentially long-lasting and irreversible implications, it's going to be more important than ever to stick closely to this principle of truly shared decision-making. And that's going to be different for different individuals. So those patients who come to you and they go, Dr. Title, just please tell me yes or no, is this a good thing for me? I'm assuming you're, you're going to put them through, through a, a more rigorous process than just that. Yeah, I think everyone has the responsibility to inform themselves as much as possible. You can't come like a blank slate. You know, it was easy enough perhaps when there's a choice between three or four different recombinant factor concentrates. 
And the patient may come to me and say, you know what, I know they're all safe. I know they're all effective. Just tell me, is there any reason that you would choose or recommend one for me rather than the other? And that is a decision in which there's really no bad choice and there's little downside from any decision that that person may make. It's different for gene therapy. This is conceptually completely different. So far, you've you've talked about the physician role and and the patient role. Who else needs to be involved in this shared decision-making process? Well, David, first of all, uh, this generation, which is the first generation of gene therapy, these products are only going to be available for older adolescents and adults. So we won't have parents being uh, the decision makers on behalf of their children. But the patient may, of course, choose to bring others in his life into the process, and that's uh, his choice. He may want to bring in his parents or maybe his spouse or his siblings or close friends. So we have to be very open to allowing the patient to decide who should be involved in that in addition to the care team. It's possible there may be patients who is judged not to be competent to make his own decision, in which case uh, there should be a, uh, an alternate decision maker who is designated to uh, help make that decision on his behalf. You've mentioned some, you know, the importance of really understanding what gene therapy means for the, for the person to receive it. What's absolutely essential for potential recipients of gene therapy to understand? Well, when we prescribe factor concentrates, unless you've got an inhibitor, we can pretty much tell you in general how you're going to respond, exactly what you can expect. But with gene therapy, we can tell you that you will probably have some response, meaning some expression of factor eight or factor nine, and that you will probably experience much less bleeding and much less need for factor concentrates, if at all. But we can't tell you how much factor you're going to express. We can tell you that on average, in the clinical trials, most patients had levels that made them equivalent to someone with very mild hemophilia. But in the individual case, those levels are going to vary from minimal amounts to amounts that are normal to those that are even above normal. And that the bleeding rates are going to vary. Some patients will not bleed at all. Others will bleed enough to have to go back on prophylaxis. So we believe that for hemophilia B patients, factor nine levels are going to persist for many years, perhaps even lifelong. But for hemophilia A, the factor eight levels appear to drop off slowly after the first year. And depending on how fast that drop-off is and how high they reached at peak, it's possible that within five to 10 years, they may need to go back on some other prophylactic therapy. So that's an important point to understand. The other thing to understand is the question of steroids, which often comes up. Some patients after gene therapy develop transiently abnormal liver function. And in some cases, this is caused by an immune response to the vector, which is the delivery particle. And that can interfere with factor eight or nine expression. And to counter that, we prescribe a short course of high-dose steroids to dampen the immune response. Now, frustratingly, we don't really know how effective the steroids are, but the stakes are so high that we really feel we have no choice but to prescribe them. And the reason I'm emphasizing this is that steroids can have unpleasant side effects, although they're uh, happily mostly reversible. So far, you've really talked quite a bit about the clinical trial uh, process and and the shared decision-making that comes with that. Will that shared decision-making process change when and and if gene therapy is approved by by Health Canada and reimbursed and becomes more widely available? And if so, how, how would it change? 
David, I think fundamentally the decision process remains the same. It may be less formalized than for clinical trials, but essentially we're ticking off all the same boxes. Is this individual qualified for the therapy? Does he reach, does he satisfy the approval criteria? And we still have to essentially go through the same process to arrive at shared decision-making. Jerry, um, in closing, how important do you think shared decision-making is in achieving the best outcomes and avoiding what we could call maybe virus remorse? Well, you know, as I said before, we can't predict how well gene therapy is going to work in any individual. We can't predict whether he'll need steroids and whether he'll have adverse effects from them if he does. If we knew that, we could confidently advise every individual about, you know, his his likelihood of having a good response, and that would really let us achieve best outcomes. But since we can't do that, all we can do is make sure that we all have as complete an understanding as possible of the risks and benefits. And that means you, the patients, and we, the care team. So shared decision-making will allow everyone with hemophilia to be confident that whatever he chooses and however things work out for him, at least that decision that he made was based on the best information available at the time, that he did his due diligence in arriving at a decision, and that he has the full support of everyone involved in his care. Before we end, Jerry, is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about shared decision-making in gene therapy? Well, I guess I would just sum up by saying we've always done this in hemophilia care. The stakes are perhaps higher and different for gene therapy, but the care team is there for you. We're we're all on the same side together, and um, we're all looking forward to this uh, exciting new era in hemophilia care. Thank you very much, Jerry. Uh, you know, I think what you've said today will be really helpful, not just to, to patients and, their, and caregivers, but perhaps to healthcare providers as well in understanding the importance of, of shared decision-making. We always appreciate your, your willingness to uh, inform and educate the community. Thanks again. You're welcome. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, David. For more information on gene therapy, we invite you to check out other podcasts in the series, including one called How Might Gene Therapy Be Delivered in Canada, in which Dr. Title returns to explore practical aspects of receiving gene therapy in Canada. For more information, we invite you to check out more episodes in this series, Hemophilia Gene Therapy, Dream or Reality. This podcast series was made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Pfizer Canada to the Canadian Hemophilia Society.